I appreciate you all coming out today. So Joe, our pastor who usually is here, had asked me to speak a few months back knowing that he was not going to be here for church on the new year. And, you know, the guy deserves a vacation because he's practically always here, and he does such a good job. So he asked me to come in his place today so that you all could appreciate how good of a job he does <laughs> when he's not here. Okay. I'll come down here because I actually prefer being closer to you all, but I do appreciate the opportunity to serve in this church and to do all of the incredible things with the music ministry that I get to, and then occasionally I've been asked to speak, and I've been asked again to come back and speak, so it always makes me feel very good to have that opportunity. But um, I, I will say that Joe has been an incredible mentor to me. He has helped guide me not only as a musician and as a Christian, but also as a church leader, so I have a lot of gratitude towards him for giving me the opportunity to come here and do this I find it exciting to serve in church ministries, to, to be present with you, to serve alongside of you, to do great things with you all. So I appreciate you coming back, and especially what a way to start out the year. So it's also a good timing to plan a sermon about New Year's. It's, it's January 1st, and it, it kind of lends itself to a variety of different ways that the message could go. I thought about coming up with a sermon about New Year's resolutions and how inevitably I always fail short. I'm sure none of you have ever experienced that. But coming to terms with your own shortcomings and then turning around and relying on God. And okay, that's, that's a great sermon, maybe. I don't know. I consider that just because there's a new year that's stretched out in front of the church that maybe it doesn't mean we have to make a clean break from the year that was. What if instead we took stock of all that God did in the life of the church over the past year? And I also consider the timing of New Year's Day as an opportunity to make a fresh encounter with Jesus, inspiring us to have a moment with our Savior that can carry us throughout the year. And in the end, I decided, why choose one? Why not take all of these together and make a 45-point lengthy and drawn-out dissertation on the church, its historical standings, and the growth over the years? A new season, a new start. Actually, no, that's not what I'm going to do. Um, I, <laughs> instead, I, I've got a very simple three-point message that I'm going to share with you. Uh, just three points of interest, and, and then we'll be able to sing some songs and go home early for the new year. It's always the quantity over the quality. Isn't that right? Oh, I'm kidding but the three, the three R's that we'll go over today. Reflect, refocus, and restart. So I've developed quite the reputation for telling stories when it comes time to deliver the message. You might remember that I told uh, a story about a woman called Henrietta Lacks, who was the woman that provided medical science with their very first look at immortal cells. Maybe you remember me talking about an amnesiac named Benjamin Kyle, who struggled to learn his own identity after forgetting all that he was and who he was. Does anybody remember the story about the Piggly Wiggly? What about the unflappable woman of the Mercury 13 project? Yeah. So today I don't have just one story that I'm going to share with you. Instead, I have three. One for each of the R's, if you will. But before I do, I want to take a look at the very first R. Let's take a moment to consider what all a new year means. Like I mentioned before, just because we're looking at the beginning of a calendar, everything that happened in the past year of the church, it isn't irrelevant. 
In fact, God calls us to take stock of all that he's done in the life of our church. Now, obviously, it can be unhealthy to dwell and spend too much time focusing on the past, but we do have several examples in the Bible where God's people took time to remember all the ways that God had been faithful to them in their history. And so that's where I want to take an opportunity to encourage you to consider the first R of my message, reflection or remembering. Psalms 105.5 tells us, remember the wonders he has done, his miracles and the judgments he pronounced. Several times in the book of Psalms, David and other psalmists do just that. They recount Israel's history and the spectacular things that the Lord had done for them. And this kind of spiritual reminiscing isn't just for the sake of nostalgia. It actually plays a part in our current and future intimacy with God. In the present, reflecting on what God has done draws us into worship. Praising the name of the Lord is the right and proper response to his activity in our lives. It was true in biblical times, and it's certainly true today. So as we step into the future, recalling God's work in the world, both the expected and the unexpected, the seen and the unseen, it gives us faith for what God will do next. Our trust in the Lord grows when we take time to remember that he's always been faithful. So now's the time for a story. I want to tell you a story about reflection and remembering. So there was a successful and prominent lawyer, a Chicago real estate mogul named Horatio. You might have heard of him. Now, Horatio found great success in life as a partner in his law firm. In, ni- or sorry, in 1861, not 1961. In 1861, at the age of 33, he married the love of his life. How lucky is that? Anna. Less than a decade later, he found himself a, wef- a wealthy businessman. He had unimaginable earning potential. He had unimaginable income from heavy investments in North Chicago real estate. And he was happy. He lived with his four kids and his wife. Actually, there were four daughters. Even better, beautiful home, beautiful family. And they could certainly say at that time in their lives that all was well. But their earthly fortunes soon changed. On October 8, 1871, all of the real estate that Horatio had owned, it went up in flames as a cow knocked over a lantern in a barn, which then set off the great Chicago fire. It spread, it raised the entire city, all of his earthly wealth with it. The law firm that he was a partner at, up in flames. All of the property, the wood buildings, up in flames. Burned for days. It took 17,000 structures, 100,000 residents became homeless. But he didn't lose faith. Instead, he continued to praise his Lord. By 1873, so now two years later, Horatio was still dealing with the aftermath of this fire. He was working with city officials and the government to rewrite different zoning districts. He was working with banks to get loans to rebuild properties. Hopefully he was working with insurance. Well, that's unclear. But he decided that he needed to stay faithful to God. So he took the time to plan a trip to England to see Dwight Moody. He wanted to go to revival so that he could participate in the revival and become revived and get his spirit renewed. 
So just before he was supposed to leave with his wife and kids, their dwindling finances took another hit during the panic of 1873. So he was detained to deal with the real estate affected by the fire, and all of the finances dealt with the run on the banks and the panic. And he went ahead and he sent his wife and his four daughters to England just a few days ahead of him. He booked passage for his wife and his four daughters on a steamship, and they set sail November 15, 1873. About one week into the crossing, maybe 2 a.m. on November 22nd, the steamship collided with an iron-hulled Scottish ship. The iron hole rang its bell and it ported its helm, and while the steamship, who was carrying Anna and the four daughters, tried to make a hard turn starboard, it was just too late. Within 12 minutes, she was sinking. Anna took her daughters out of their room to the deck where all of the chaos was ensuing. Having been told that the ship would soon sink, she knelt down and prayed that God would save them. However, the steamship sank into the murky, cold Atlantic waters. 226 souls were lost. While rowing a small boat, a sailor saw a woman clinging to a piece of wreckage. It was Anna, and she was still alive. However, all four of her daughters had drowned. Another vessel hauled her to Cardiff, Wales, nine days later, and she decided to cable her husband a telegram that said, Saved alone what shall I do? Horatio quickly left Chicago for Liverpool, and as he crossed the Atlantic, the captain called him from his cabin to say that by his best reckoning, they were passing over the very spot where his daughters had perished. He wrote to his wife's half-sister, on Thursday last, we crossed over the spot where she went down in mid-ocean, in waters three miles deep, but I do not think of our little ones there. They're safe folded, the dear lambs. With all of this in mind, all of the great suffering and all of the great tragedy, he recalled, he reflected, and he remembered God and that it was well with his soul. And that's when Horatio Spafford penned the words to the famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. I'm going to play it on the piano for you.
How many of you knew that story? Several of you have heard that, I'm sure. I was familiar with the wife dying and, or sorry, not with the wife dying, with the children dying on a steamship, but I had no idea of all of the rest of the story that, that carried um, that song into existence that we still sing today. So we've talked about our very first remembering. Let's talk about refocusing, the second R. So refocusing your life, your walk with Christ, your thinking or where you're led. At the beginning of the new year, people often take stock of their life and they'll assess their past decisions, maybe consider the trajectory that they're on for the future. And so that makes January 1st in particular an especially good time to call the church back to what matters most. Think if you were going to talk to a newcomer to the church and you were going to highlight maybe the essentials of your Christian faith, where would you start? What would you want to make sure that you did not leave out? Chances are, with all the New Year's resolutions being tossed out, there are several of you that are either here in the pews or maybe watching on the live stream who might be either new to church or wanting to renew your faith. It's a great opportunity to set out on the right path. Even if you're not new to the faith, you can just take this time to refocus on Jesus as a reminder of what it's all about. So what is it all about? It's all about Jesus. Just take it from the Apostle Paul. When he wrote about the essentials of the faith, he focused on the death and resurrection of our Savior. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that's out of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. So for the story of refocusing, I want to tell you about a woman called Eliza Hewitt, a name that's probably not familiar to many. She was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she was educated in the public schools of that city. This was in the 1860s or so that she graduated valedictorian of the Philadelphia's girls' high school class. And she went on to obtain a position as a teacher at the very school that she graduated. And for much of the beginning of her career, she found a passion in studying English, literature, poetry. And while she was enjoying her calling to teach, Eliza suddenly fell ill, and her career was just cut short. In the blink of an eye, she became confined to a bed and in excruciating pain from a spinal malady. For years, she suffered bedridden, unable to leave her home. She wanted to continue her passion, though, so on her days of gradual improvement, she studied. During her slow convalescence, Eliza wanted to be helpful to her church, so she began writing poems for them. Writing didn't fill her passion, though. She still felt useless. I can only imagine being on a track to... Greatness in teaching and educating only to be bedridden, unable to move, unable to fulfill. I'm sure she felt some depression, but she filled her time. She wrote thousands and thousands of poems, and many of them became hymns. Eventually, she did become well enough to engage again in church service, and she became active in her Sunday school, and later the superintendent of the primary department of the church that she attended, so she got to recall her, 
her calling for education. And there was no place where she was happier than in the beloved primary rooms, surrounded by her young teachers, her little scholars. And in connection with her work, she contributed to countless Sunday school plans, periodicals, lessons, and stories. Her hymns were the result of intense focus during a time of insurmountable hardship. Had she never been bedridden, she never would have had the life circumstances to refocus her thoughts and her life work on hymn writing. She refocused her career and her life as she wrote hymns for the glory of her Savior. She never kept a record of how many of these hymns that she wrote, but it's known to pass into the thousands. You might have heard Sunshine in My Soul. That was one of hers. It was given wings that circled the globe and came back to her with many beautiful stories of its use. And the same is true of many of the other hymns that she wrote. Does anyone know who Fanny Crosby is? Another hymn writer. Fanny Crosby wrote tons of hymns that you'll find in either of those hymnals. She was blind. It was a glad day when Eliza got to meet fellow hymn writer Fanny Crosby, and they got to share their mutual love and joy for God and the hymns that they wrote in his service. She wrote the song that I'm about to play for you, More About Jesus. And after writing it, she was asked to reflect on her life. And she said, in looking over my life, I would humbly and gratefully say, "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." Her song, "'More about Jesus would I know, more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me, more more about Jesus, more, more about Jesus, more of his saving fullness see, more of his love who died for me. Play this one. talked about refocusing, and we've talked about reflecting. Why not the last R, restarting? So finally, <laughs> the last one, as we run towards the end, I asked you to consider how you will restart. So we can lean into the atmosphere of the new year, all of its traditions. Many people make some sort of resolution, like we talked about at the start of the year, whether it's to lose weight, eliminate debt, read through the Bible, lose weight. Embrace this spirit. Remember the most important resolution of all, to make Jesus first in your life. For some people, this fresh encounter with Jesus may look a lot like the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19.8. We talked about him not too long ago in our services. 
He was so bowled over by the love of God that he eagerly repented of his sin, proclaiming, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The new year is perfect time to be inspired to have your own Zacchaeus moment, to be moved by the richness of God. However, for some of you, your reckoning with God may look different than an intentional moment of recommitment. In the busyness of life, it can be easy to forget that we're commanded to love, that we're commanded to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Early in the year, while resolutions and priorities are on top of everyone's mind, why not focus on the importance of coming back to the Lord when you've strayed? So, for the story of restarting, I want to tell you probably one of my favorites of the three. It's told over the course of a man's lifetime, and his name is Palmer Hotsoff, and he sounds like a man on a mission. He has words of conviction forthrightly in the title of the song that he wrote when he was only 52 years old. So he moved to Cincinnati to work with a publisher and craft the words to a hymn that a lot of you might know. I'm going to read it now. It's called, I Am Resolved. I am resolved no longer to linger, torn by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I will hasten to him, hasten, so glad and free. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He has the words of life. I am resolved, and who will go with me? Come, friends, without delay. Taught by the Bible, led by the Spirit, we'll walk the heavenly way. After all, does a person have more than one resolution in life? Perhaps multiple sub-revolutions that follow and flow from that one that's paramount. Palmer had been a musical professional for all of his adult life when he spelled out his convictions in I Am Resolved, and it seems to be a musical pledge that eventually took him deeper into devotion as his life progressed, because after he wrote that song, he really did resolve to no longer linger, to follow his Savior. Over the course of 10 years, he became an ordained minister and served in that role until he retired at the age of 84. By reading the words to his famous hymn, we learn that he wasn't a malingerer or someone who was satisfied with just marking time. Instead, he examined himself and wasn't afraid of a resolution that challenged his own direction, even if it was one thing that he'd spent decades pursuing. What was it that Palmer resolved or persuaded others to resolve in 1896? Don't loiter about with insignificant pursuits in the world. Keep the Savior Jesus in sight with him as your end guide and goal. Doing these will get one to the only destination that really matters, perhaps, despite the potential opposition from others that you might face along the way. Can you imagine if Palmer had not done a little self-inspection? What if he hadn't implemented that course correction? Can you picture him doing these things, writing this song, pledging this, and actually meaning it? This 10-year process, 10-year course correction on life, if he, could did, if he could do it, 
can you or I do the same? And I think about that, that in the time that he wrote this song, he committed and resolved to make this his mission. And I'm not saying everyone's called into the ministry to become an ordained minister, but it's interesting to see that he actually lived the words that he had written and ended up following those until he had uh, gotten into his older years. So I'm going to play I Am Resolved, No Longer to Linger. In coming today for a new year, a new start, I'm going to ask that you take a chance to consider all that was in 2022, the life of the church, what's brought us here, so that you can reflect and remember. I ask that you refocus your life, that you consider that it truly is all about Jesus, and that you restart and resolve to follow your Savior. <laughs> 